Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. Thank you to Kyle for um, taking that difficult passage last week. That was his choice. Nobody made him do that. He, he just jumped in and said, I'll take the hardest passage in the book, and I didn't fight him on it, so I, I let him do it. But Kyle, I think you did a great job, and I think that you set up well the nature of... Let's turn on the middle lights in here, since those far lights... Those are going to get replaced this week, I think, hopefully. Um, I think Kyle did a great job setting up the household code, because... The first half of Ephesians is all about God setting out, this is what it looks like to be a part of my family and my kingdom. And the second half is really the practical outworkings of it. And I think that every single part of this book is really relevant to us, particularly today's portion in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So let's jump in. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Nope, no, the, ki- the kids don't need it. You need it. So we're. All right. Jade's, Jade, it's, I'm not talking to you. Jeez, don't freak out, okay? The one kid in here is crying as she has, as we read this. <laughs> Fathers, here we go. Here's your part. Ready? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Dad, rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Lord God, would, would you let this speak to the places in our heart that are rebellious, the places in our heart that are proud, the places in our heart that are insecure. Let it change the way that we live in this world so that people experience your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Now remember as we're reading this that God is creating for himself the, the radical plan that Paul reveals to us for the very first time in Ephesians is that God has this plan to create for himself one people. And this passage in particular 
is about bridging the gap between some of the most contentious relationships in our lives, both within last week, our marriages, and then with our children, and then with our bosses. That's like what? 90% of, of the relationships that we have in the world is those three things. And just like Paul subverted, I think last week Kyle did a great job showing that Paul subverted the very nature of men and women's relationships. What he did in this passage was demonstrate that God Himself wants to bring us back to the garden. Like, what happened on the cross reversed the power of the curse to make us live in these hierarchical relationships that happened under the curse. The partnership in the garden is what God wanted to recapture in marriage. And Paul is saying that's what it looks like to be a part of His kingdom, is to recapture this partnership the equality between the sexes, our relationships to be set right again, rather than lording over one another with authority, we are entering into this sort of kingdom partnership. What God wants to do is take that same thing and turn it on its head here. There's a radical reframing in Ephesians 5 and 6 that I think it still should startle us because it changes our relationships from being relationships of duty and relationships of hierarchy to relationships of love and of equality. From duty and hierarchy to love and equality. And that still is offensive to our modern minds. Because none of our workplaces and rarely any of our homes recognize this reality. Honor your father and mother as the Lord has commanded you. Then you will live a long, full life in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. This is a commandment, an ancient commandment. We're talking, it was a 1,500-year-old commandment when Paul was speaking it. And it was built into the Ten Commandments. It's not an afterthought. It's right up there with murder and idolatry. God builds in this particular thing where he says, honor your father and mother. Why, why does God care about that? I, you know, as parents, we all know, it's because God wants us to have good lives. It's because God wants us to have an easy life where our kids are obedient, beautiful little children who sit quietly and do what we want, right? And that's exactly what he gave us with all these beautiful kids. I think God, God cares about that, but, but there's, there's two things I want to pull out of this. First is, honoring your father and mother is a lifetime calling. It's not something that ends with our childhood. And it's not something that's primarily about obedience. Honor is about a relationship of love where I set you up as a person who, person who has dignity, respect, and I owe service to. As an, as an obligation of love, I owe service to you. And it's written into the Ten Commandments primarily and... and Many Hebrew scholars will tell you this. It was primarily there not for kids who are in their... Um, it's not for kids who are under the age of, of adulthood. It's not for kids. This is primarily for adult children as a social security measure to honor their parents by caring for their needs. 
That's why this is here. That's why it was always there. This was God's plan from the beginning, is that parents would care for their kids when they're babies, they would change their diapers, and then we would change the, the diapers of our parents as they get older. That's the plan. That's the lifespan, is that God meant for us to live, so to speak. I, I plan to pay a nurse handsomely to do that work for me. But, <laughs> uh, but that, that is, this is the honor that's due. This is a part of God's plan to care for people in our society. But just like last week, it starts with the weaker party. And uh, what we've ta- we talk about this quite often, which is funny. I, I don't know why it always comes up. But we go back to Genesis chapter 15, and ancient covenant relationships are set up as treaties or uh, a contractual agreement between almost always a weaker party and a stronger party. Almost all contracts are between a weaker party and a stronger party. Someone who needs something, someone who has something to offer, and the strong one then offers to the weak one in, in return for something else. That's the way almost all contracts work. Um, even in our, our modern u- end-user agreements that we click on, the strong party, the one who offers this new technology that we desire, they set the terms that we, the plebeian people, then have to agree to to get access to the thing that we want. That is the nature of contracts, the weak and the strong. And as in most contracts, it starts with the obligations of the weak, but in this case, God subverts it and says, the weak one will offer to the strong one something different than what's expected of them. For children in the ancient world, they were treated like property. In almost all of human society, children have been treated like property to be used to further the economic um, the economic desires of the father, primarily. That's what children have always been seen as, is property that should be, um, should be socialized into serving the, the economic needs of the family and the household. And in this situation, we see that the weaker party gets an obligation to honor their father and mother. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. It doesn't say honor your parents because they're good. It doesn't say honor, the par- honor your parents because um, you want to. It doesn't say honor th- your parents because um, it's a command. Phew. Yeah. You're real lucky. <laughs> That's what it says. This is really an interesting phenomenon to listen to your son. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on some things here. (laughs) Uh, Children, obey your parents. Because you belong to the Lord, this is the right thing to do. This is essential to our identity as kingdom people. This is what we do as kingdom people as we honor our parents. When they don't deserve it, particularly when they don't deserve it, when they are abusive to us and when they don't do things the way we want them to and when they disappoint us our calling as children is to honor them and to care for them 
because God gave us to them. You are God's plan to care for your parents. You are God's plan for the most significant relationships your parents will ever have. You are God's plan for their social security and their Medicare. When it runs out in 2035, you are going to be the plan that God wants to use. This is what it looks like. And, and, and I think that we, we start there by recognizing that as, as kids we have responsibilities. But then we look back and we, I don't know if you guys do this, but when my parents or, or family need something, I want to care for them because I want my kids to see me caring for my parents so that they know to care for me when, when I'm old. Have you ever thought about that? Your kids are going to do whatever you do with your parents. That's what they're going to do for you because that's what they think their obligation is to you. There is no transaction in the parent-child relationship. Almost never in your life with your parents will you be in an, in an equal place where you can offer to one another the same things. When you're a child, you are going to need, your, your entire life is going to be built around them caring for you. When you're a young adult, you're still going to need their support and the backdrop of the safety that they provide. When you're a middle-aged adult, there will be a shift. And then all of a sudden, your parents are going to need something from you, and then they're going to really need you in the end of your life. There is no transaction in parenting where you say, well, mom hasn't been showing up much lately and she hasn't been serving me lately, therefore, I don't owe her anything. No, you owe her everything. That's your mother. Now, some of you, I know, as we're talking through this, you have very difficult relationships with your parents. And they have deeply disappointed you. Some of you, your parents abandoned you. Some of you, one or both of your parents has never been in the picture. Some of you, you were rejected by your parents and they gave you to somebody else. That's a hard thing to swallow, especially when we're talking about these relationships. But this relationship is not a transaction. You don't honor your parents because they're good. You don't honor your parents because they did the right thing. You honor your parents because that's what God's people do. And when we look at our own kids, we need to think of it as a relationship because they're, they're given to us to steward, but our own kids, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They belong to our Father. They're going to grow up and they're going to become brothers and sisters. You're going to have to sit under the preaching of your son or your brother or your brother-in-law, God forbid. <clears throat> and... And these little humans that God's entrust, God entrusts to us, they have incredible dignity and worth. They're not just, they're not just labor. They're not just, in, in our culture, like if you have two kids, it's a sign that you're a part of the breeding class and that you have enough disposable income to provide for a couple of kids. If you have four kids, you're an idiot. If you have no kids, 
Like it's it's like kids kids are a uh, um, it's it's an economic symbol of class today. But that's not what kids are. Yeah, if you have six, you're really crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you have seven, you're out of your mind. Um, but these little humans, they're, they're yours, and they're, they have incredible dignity and worth. They're going to be your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you have responsibilities to one another, responsibility to respect them. Do you respect your kids as humans? It's hard, because they're, they're not really humans. I mean, the girls are going to become human-like at 13 or 14, the boys at 24, 25. Like, they, they, there's a moment where they hit it, and it's like a good thing. But, like, they're not, they, they don't look like the type of human that I want to hang out with. They yell at me, and they throw things, and they, like, they're the worst roommates on the planet. <laughs> and they just, you know, they're terrible. But, can we respect our kids as humans? As Imago Dei, the image of the one true God. Can we treat them with the kind of dignity that God's kids deserve? Can we care for them out of generosity rather than as a reciprocation for the love that we get from them? Generational connection and care, our relationship with our kids and with our parents, is the center of God's provision for people. What sociologists will tell you is that when family relationships break down, that's the beginning of poverty, it's the beginning of addiction, it's the beginning of death. Your connection with your intimate family is the center of the way that we care for each other. And our world has broken down those relationships to become transactional between ourselves and our kids and ourselves and our parents. And so when those things break down, what happens? We live in a world that's bereft of social care for one another. And so we rely on institutions like the government to provide the basic needs of our parents. But also, 50% of our kids are born into non-intact families. And they, we don't live connected with our parents in a way that they can support us as we raise our kids. This is God's plan. The number one indicator for poverty in our world is a single parent. Number one. You are five times as likely to live in the lowest 20% of income earners by being a single parent. We have fundamentally altered how we think about lifelong care in loving families, and we're meant to live in multi-generational households, two, three, and four generations to care for one another. It sounds awful, I agree, <laughs> um, but this is God's plan. When we follow the way of Jesus, when we use confession, humility, holiness, gentleness, long-suffering, love and forgiveness as the basis of relationships, we see an unparalleled power to keep connected over a lifetime. And it just starts with one of the people in the relationship offering as a gift honor and obedience to the other. That's why Paul says, children, obey your parents so that it might go well with you and you might live a long life. They're so intimately connected. So for some of you, you're thinking, gosh, this really is hard. This is a hard pill to swallow because we have hard relationships with our kids. And we have hard relationships with our parents. And here's the deal. 
It might be because of them. It might be because of you. It might be because of both. But as far as it is with you, you have responsibilities. Um, Now, we're going to move on to the strong party, which is the father in the relationship. And it's interesting that only the father's mentioned, right? It's interesting. You could take two things from that. You could assume that mothers are, don't have these problems like fathers do. And that might be true, but it's probably not. The real reason I think that women are not mentioned is that in the ancient world, women weren't around because they died. One third of women died in childbirth before the 19th century. And so fathers were the, the center of the household because they tended to live through the childhood of the adult. They're the ones who were there. In ancient Rome, uh, there's this quote I read. In ancient Rome, fathers were endowed with nearly limitless power over their family, especially their children. This patria potestas, or the father's power, gave him legal rights over his children until he died or his children were emancipated. These powers included the right to arrange marriages or force divorce, to expose a newborn child if he did not want him or her, and even disown, sell, or kill his child. The father had limitless power in the life of his kids. And so when Paul says to the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them, he is saying you have responsibilities to your children. You have responsibilities to treat them with dignity and respect because they will be your brothers and sisters in the family of God. You will share your life with them. And you know what? They won't want to care for you if you're a jerk to them. That's the reality. They're not going to want to be around, and there's lots of broken relationships because there's unrepentant sin in the relationships between parents and kids that needs to be dealt with. But I love that in this, in each of these scenarios between husbands and wives, fathers and children, and slaves and masters, all of them flip it upside down and invite the weaker party to be the one that is the healing force. The weaker one is given the opportunity to submit out of love rather than out of authority. Not because they are in a weaker position, but because they belong in the household of God. And so for us, when we look at our relationships with both our kids and with our parents, the question is, how are we going to live in a way that gives away love without demanding it in return. I can't tell you how often I talk with people and they'll tell me something like, he did this, he did that, therefore, I've cut them out of my life. You get one shot, or two shots, or five shots, and once you've transgressed some certain line, they don't belong in your life anymore. Now, I do believe that there are truly abusive relationships and there are people that are a threat to you and your family that ought to be cut out because their unrepentant sin makes it impossible to live in a relationship with them. I think that's real. But in our modern cancel culture, we've decided that if somebody transgresses our moral sensibilities in our families, that they no longer belong as a part of my responsibilities to them or their responsibilities to me. I think that the invitation for all of us as children of parents, as husbands and wives, 
and as slaves and masters or employers and employees, we take responsibility to love in spite of how others treat us. All right, now let's go to the harder passage. Here we go. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This, okay, maybe I got the harder passage, Kyle. This, this one, this one's, that's a tough read, right? I asked you for this one, too. Yeah, I, I, I took it because I needed to break it up so that we got all the way to Easter on the sermon series. You know, that's the way these things go. Um, <clears throat> slaves, obey your earthly masters. Does anybody just, like, cringe when they read that? This was the South's favorite verse for 200 years. They loved this passage because the masters could use this as a demand of their slaves to obey them and to work heartily as unto the Lord. I mean, there are some distinctions between ancient slavery under the Roman system and the chattel slavery system of the South in America. But it's hair-splitting. That's just the reality. People owned other people. They had the legal right where slaves themselves were not treated as humans. They were treated as subhuman. These slaves lived and worked as a part of households. They were domestic servants. They did work in fields. Um, they, they even, some of them had jobs like as, as accountants and business managers within households, much like the chattel slavery system of the Deep South during the 17, 16, 1500s. So, I, I mean, I could, I could make you like some, some differences here, but in all reality, it was the same. And what I, want, what I want to dive into here is that this is a system that was built on power that was deeply evil in the first century. This was not the way that God made us to live in slavery. In fact, what Jesus says when he declares his purpose for coming, what does he say? He says, I came to set slaves free. That was his purpose. That's the work that the kingdom is doing. And the institution of slavery itself is a system that was being used to, ins- to entrap both slaves and masters into an economic system that God never intended. Slavery was never God's intention. But I think that Paul, in all of his wisdom... He knew that emancipation from slavery doesn't happen because of a slave revolt. It doesn't happen because one slave says, I'm not doing it anymore. 
Emancipation from slavery in a system, an economic system built on exploitation, only happens by the will of God through His Holy Spirit's power to make massive societal transformation. So when we look at the Emancipation Proclamation of 1865, we should see that as an incredible movement of God to create this historic change, to set aside in the Western world what had been this evil system for hundreds and hundreds of years. It doesn't happen because one slave owner and one master choose to disassemble their relationship. And both at the time in the first century and in the 17th century and 18th century here in America, there were deep penalties for freeing your slaves. In, in North Carolina in the 1640s, if you wanted to free your slave, you had to come up with a $4,000 bond in 1840 a $4,000 bond to guarantee that if that slave did something, once they were freed, you were economically responsible for it, and you had to put up a $4,000 bond. You know what that made it impossible to do? It made it more costly to free your slaves than to buy your slaves. And these are the systems, even in the first century, they had systems that made it impossible to free slaves because it was meant as a source of societal domination. And most, most slaves were there because they had, been, they had been overwhelmed. Their country had been taken over by Rome. And then they were treated, like because they fought in the rebellion, they were treated as slaves and taken as slaves to Roman households throughout the Roman world. And when the Roman world stopped enslaving people that they had conquered, this economic system of slavery broke down because they didn't have access to new slaves. And so when Paul was writing this, he was saying, there's this system that he can't fix, that isn't going to be fixed in a short amount of time. So the question is, how do we live within it? And I'm going to say this, like our economic system right now has some of these same pieces to it. We still have exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable. We still have deep economic inequalities that are built on systems that are meant to create inequality. That was never God's plan. God's plan was for all of humanity to flourish by taking the resources that he's entrusted to us and working together to provide for one another. And when we look at the year of Jubilee that, Jesus, that God set out for the Jews, it was meant to every 70 years have an economic reset where all the land that had been bought because some people were poor and some people were rich, it would go back to the original owners. Now that's crazy talk, right? That was the economic system that God set up in Israel. And so when we're reading this, we have to kind of go back and say, how do you exist in a system that's unjust? Well, you do a radical thing. You love instead, instead of relying on authority and position, you love in humility and service. And that's a radical thing for anyone to do. If you look at our lives right now, we live in a time of bondage to work. 
As humans, we spend more hours working outside of the home than at almost any time in human history. Our work and the corporations that we work for demand more and more from us. They want our hours. They want engagement and communication 24-7. They want unpaid work. They want very little time off. They want maximum efficiency with your time and your energy. And they want you to do it with minimal resources. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like slavery to me. It sounds a lot like people who have power exploiting those who are weak. And if you're looking at our economic system, it's that wealth and power is being concentrated among a smaller group of people all the time. The economics of work have, have always had these same temptations. Bosses want more work, they want to pay less, they want more profit, and they want to work less themselves. They want faster return on investment. And this is the temptation that you and I have as, if you run an organization, if you lead something, you have all those temptations. You look at your workforce and you wonder, how much more could I get out of them? You wonder if, I'm, if, if they're worth the amount I'm paying them. Do you, you ever wonder that about your employees? I don't. No, I do. I do. Um, do, do, you ever, do you ever wonder if, if you just set it up differently and you got more work out of them, you could work less? You could use their work to provide for you to work less? God hates this mentality. Because it's about us not trusting Him. It's about us ignoring His commitments and His commandments to love and honor the people that God has entrusted to us. It's flat out a system of evil in our world that's built on greed. Where we look and we say, how can I get more with less effort using other people? There will be work in God's kingdom. From this day to the end, there will always be work to do. We were meant to work. Work is a beautiful and good thing that helps us understand God's love for us because when we work, we participate in His work of creation. When we work, we understand the, the incredible gift God gave us in this world because it yields fruit that care for us through our labors. Work is a very, very good thing. But there will be no slavery. There will be no exploitation. There will be no evil corporations in the kingdom. Those are all going away. And so we have to ask for us, what does that look like? How do we live in this world that has systems of exploitation? And how do we live faithfully in it? The relationship that we have with employers is different today, but it holds the same commitments that we have as followers of Jesus. What does it mean? Well, in every relationship, it's one of three postures. We're either over, under, or we're an equal. So when we are over, so those of you who have responsibilities for others, those of you who are bosses, those of you who um, direct others in their work, in your work relationship, what Paul says is, do not lord over them like the Gentiles do. Your position is a gift that you're meant to steward, not a privilege you're meant to exploit. Okay? Your position is something given to you to steward, not a position to exploit. And so when we're over, 
we have a deep responsibility to care for those that God has entrusted to us. In our families, it means we do not exacerbate our kids or treat them with indignity. It means that we look at them and we see them for who they are. They are people who are becoming what God has made them to be. And so we partner and steward alongside God, helping them to become what they're meant to be. Not using them to care for the things that stress me out. Not yelling at them because I feel out of control. It means that I love them and I care for them and I treat them with dignity. In our church family, it means that we, we walk in servant leadership, not lording it over one another like the Gentiles do. It means that the elders shouldn't be heaping responsibility on you. It means that we should be the ones who are serving first. I love that Bob is sitting in our tech booth right now because he is committed to serving our community. When we're under, it means that we do radical service not because we're afraid of our bosses, but out of radical submission and love to Jesus. We don't work for our employer. We work for our king. And Jesus uses this economic relationship to provide for our families. And so all the work that we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And we should be some of the best employees because it's not a transaction or a contractual obligation, but it's an act of love. And I, I kind of wrote out all the jobs that I've ever had. And I, I got to tell you, I like work. I, I enjoy having something to do. I enjoy getting it done. And I enjoy, even in the hardest parts of it, I enjoy that it serves people. And I think some of you hate work. And I don't, I don't understand why, but I think it's because you haven't understood that work is what we're meant for. And that in every job, you have a role that is serving people. And that those people are worthy of your time. They are. And it, it, it may not feel like it every day, but when you do your work saying, um, I, I know what all of you do, so it's easy to kind of pick out, but like, uh, who do I pick on? There's so many of you. I'll pick on D Derek. When Derek goes to work, he's got this role managing this impatient logistics that has an incredible, incredibly important part of the delivery of medical care. And so when you do your job well, it blesses our community. And that's beautiful. And thank you for showing up and doing your work. When Alyssa shows up at Trader Joe's, she raises the prices on our vegetables every week. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not her personally. But Alyssa, when you show up and you are a part of the way that we receive the sustenance God's provided through the ground, you've created an environment where we can access something that I couldn't on my own. So thank you for your good work. I, I could do this with all of you, but your work is beautiful. It's important. When Amy is sitting at the side of the bed of our loved ones, as they prepare to enter into their eternal rest, you're doing something that none of the rest of us understand how to do. And you're loving and caring for those families. Your work is beautiful and important. Our work is important. So what do we do when our work is awful? <laughs> um, now, there is bad work. I'm going to say there is bad work. 
There's work that's not worth doing in our world. There's work, um, I think there's a lot of jobs that require a lot of deceit, and deceit is a destructive force in our world. So if your job requires deceit, you should figure out a way to do it without deceit, or you should get out of that work. It's not good work. If your job requires exploitation of others, um, like drugs and the sex trade, that's not good work because it employs exploitation. But when our work is awful, that's an opportunity for us to really live out the, this kingdom mentality. And you shine bright in dark places when you do work with joy. I had a friend, um, I, I sold insurance for my first job out of college, and it was like barely good work. Like it was just like <laughs> right on the edge of being good work. And of course, I saw it as a transitional thing. I, I didn't enjoy it, but I had this guy who was in my office. He was a Hispanic guy named David who was a boxer. He had, he had beaten his brains in boxing for years and years, but he would show up every morning and he, I'd ask him how his day was, and he said, it's another beautiful morning. I'm here, I have a job, and God's given me today. And in a, in a very tough work environment with a demanding kind of work that didn't feel good, I saw David shine bright because he loved the people that he served. And I think that in dark places, a little bit of light shines really bright. So what do we do when we're equal? Much like in our marriages, when we're equal? Well, it looks like mutual submission, like Jesus. We don't try to find an edge in competition with our peers. We treat others with dignity. We treat our friends and others as adults, rather than patronizing them or infantilizing them. Do you have a friend who does that? Anybody have a friend who does that? You don't have to name them. But when you treat others with dignity like they're adults, even when they don't act like it, it transforms how they see themselves. It's an important part of what we do. We speak truth lovingly, but not arrogantly. So in our mutual relationships, instead of using it to beat one another up, we use truth to engage and, and invite them into growth rather than demanding that they grow at the pace that we want them to. There's so much we could go into. I, I'm seven minutes over. I have a clock now. It's telling me that I'm seven minutes over. It didn't stop me, but it's there and it's flashing. So this is a, this is a starting point for me. All right. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I, I want to pray these things together. Would you stand with me? Lord God. We want our work relationships and our family relationships to be filled with your grace. We want to live deeply connected to the people in our lives. We want to walk humbly serving others. We want to honor our parents and we want to honor and care for our kids. We want to be great employers and we want to be incredible employees. We want to, we want to live in our marriage relationships in a way that brings honor and joy to you. So God, would you give us generosity, a spirit of generosity rather than greed? 
Would you help us to live in open trust and communication with you and with others? Would you give us shrewd and loving business relationships that overcome the, the temptation to exploit? Lord God, would you give us good boundaries and accountability and give us true discernment when it's time to step out of a role and enter into a new one? And Lord God, as your people, direct our steps so that the work we do is our best contribution to your kingdom coming to life right now and in the age to come. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, during this last song, we're going to come forward and receive communion. And as you do so, um, especially during the Lenten season, I think it's an appropriate time to start thinking about as Jesus went to the cross, what did it take for him to give up for the kingdom of God to come through his death on the cross? I want, I want to celebrate as we receive communion, remember what Jesus gave up. Not just the, his body being broken, not just his blood being shed, but he and his father were torn asunder by our sin. All of the shame that we deserved was heaped on him. He was betrayed by those closest to him. His countrymen treated him like a traitor. Rome treated him like a threat. And in spite of all the ways that the people around him treated him, he entered in as a humble servant, dying in our place so that we could receive it from him. And so as we receive from the table this week and every week, we're entering into that servanthood, that relationship with the world that says, I give myself up for others to experience life. So come forward and receive communion during this last song. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.